1: Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash TalkAwayTheDark. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this
2: is Reset. It's Friday, and that means it's time for our Friday News Roundup when we break down some of the biggest news of the week, and it's been a week.
1: Here in Chicago, the murder of George Floyd evoked a long history of violence against African-Americans in this country.
0: Protesters against police killings and brutality are demanding the removal of police officers stationed in Chicago public schools.
1: Chicago's police superintendent says looting and unrest are subsiding, but the National Guard will remain indefinitely.
2: Mayor Lightfoot says the message from business owners is clear. They want to reopen.
1: We didn't stand by and let the South and the West Side burn, as, unfortunately, some people are propagating.
2: Joining us now to break down those stories and more is Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst, Laura Washington. Hi, Laura.
3: Great to be with you, Jen.
2: Also with us, ProPublica Illinois reporter and columnist, Mick Dumkey. Mick, welcome back. Thank you. Well, as you both know, protests continued in Chicago last night in response to the killing of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. Let's listen. Why are there officers in my school and we don't have enough social workers? Why are there officers at my school and we have to share counselors for a whole class of 2020? Laura, can you tell us more specifics about this protest in particular?
3: Well, this is a protest uh, that uh, was organized primarily, I think, by young folks in Black Lives Matters, And uh, I believe it's the one that Kanye West actually showed up uh, to in, in, to endorse his support. And I think it's significant because... Uh, Black Lives Matter and many of the other progressive uh, uh, activists in town have been calling for a reduction in police services, reduction in funding for the CPD for, for several years now. And those calls have become renewed in most recent days because of all the unrest over pol- the handling of the police handling of many cases. And so th- th- but this is a different argument. This is an argument about reducing services, police services within the Chicago public schools. In fact, there's a, a massive contract, $33 million contract that CPS has with the police department, to, in which uh, police officers come into the schools. And a lot of folks say that this is not the kind of setup, not the kind of uh, response that you want in a in a school system. You want you want uh, support for, st- for children. If there's violence, if there's if there's stress and tensions, there's better ways to police schools than this. And if this just leads to more violence and more conflict. And I think that that argument. Uh, around schools is much more compelling in many ways, and I think a lot more people can understand that argument as opposed to the one that we just should, you know, cut back on policing citywide.
2: Mm, yeah, Jamal Cole and, and Good Kids Mad City behind that protest there, and, and they're really talking about having, you know, why isn't there more of a restorative justice model in schools rather exactly. than having uh, police in in cps and we saw minneapolis public schools cancel its contract with local police after george george floyd's death i mean mick is this something you think cps would consider i
3: think in this these are new times and new days now i think that uh, cps Would have a different perspective on this. I think the 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 argument is there are other ways to provide security, and there are other ways to engage students. And there's been a lot of evidence that shows that when you bring policing into a school system, when you bring cops into these kinds of situations, it leads to much more uh, uh, prohibitive and more. it's just not a good way to, to treat children and many children are are going to end up in the criminal justice system that would not have it because they're going to have that kind of police contact. It's unnecessary.
2: Make your thoughts.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think um, Laura pointed out $33 million a year. And I think this is a very specific uh, demand. It's a very specific issue that uh, the activists and demonstrators um who seem to be growing in number, by the way, uh, have not only been talking about for some time, but now, obviously, it has renewed importance. And so Laura is exactly right. I mean, there's a broader discussion going on about funding for police departments during an era when uh, they seem to have been more militarized, uh, not just public safety departments, but heavily armed forces. And uh, the idea that we're spending tens of millions of dollars a year to have uh, police officers in schools at a time when the schools are strapped for cash, uh, you know, often don't have adequate services for social workers, for libraries, um, for athletic programs or arts programs. I think it's a really compelling argument.
3: And you know, it's you could take it from the top because uh, Lori Lightfoot, during her address to the city the other night, uh, called for, in fact, restorative justice and um, community engagement in that uh, that should be embedded and brought into the police training system. She's talking about bringing in community activists and others to teach history, African-American history, history of neighborhoods, and again, restorative justice uh, at the police academy. So if, if there's conversation coming from the top at City Hall about, about that kind of reform, I think this, this is another example of, of how we can start to look differently at how we look at policing in the city.
2: Well, you mentioned Mayor Lori Lightfoot's rare primetime address that came after several nights of unrest in the city. And she said she feels hopeful for the city's future. Let's listen.
1: To the thousands of people here in Chicago and across the country who engaged in peaceful, nonviolent protests for change, I stand with you. However, I must draw a sharp line between the righteous and the wrong, between the hopeful and the cynical. We cannot conflate legitimate First Amendment expression with criminal conduct. Those acts are separate and distinct.
2: Mick, the mayor said in that speech that she's planning to implement a series of police reforms within 90 days. What does that include?
0: Well, most of the things she talked about were... um Issues or proposals that have already been out there, and some of them I think have previously been committed to. So, really, what she did in the speech was uh, announce a a specific timetable of 90 days to implement some of them. And she's talking about things like um, improving training and uh, not just policing uh, type training, but uh, community education. She spoke uh, about making sure officers understood the history of communities in Chicago and and even having young people uh, be part of the training to make sure that officers understood their perspective on what was going on in their neighborhood. Um, I just thought in general the speech, you know, it seemed very heartfelt. I thought it was a good speech. Uh, but it's this line that uh, Mayor Lightfoot is trying to walk here where she's um, expressing sympathy, of course, for the protesters and, and talking a lot. She's been talking a lot about structural and historic racism, uh, white supremacy are uh, the, the roots of this beyond just the issue of policing. While she's also, you know, the mayor of a major, a major American city, um, and she's trying to respond to the looting and some of the uh, more violent unrest that happened. Um, and, it's you know, it's a difficult line for her to walk. She's in, really in a tough spot.
2: Well, and, and it's important, Laura, to also point out that She also has uh, a new head of the FLP, the Fraternal Order of Police, which represents rank and file officers, who's spoken out very publicly against reform, against the consent decree that CPD is currently operating under.
3: Well, yes, and she has been. Uh, she's missed no words about that. Uh, uh, in response to that, and she, her attitude is that she believes that the FOP will be always against anything that her administration wants to do. It, in fact, previous administrations. I think that um, what makes her such an interesting person to watch in, at this important time is that she comes out of a very strong policing background herself. She was a former head of the Chicago Police Board. She was a co-chair of the, of the Police Accountability Task Force that helped pave the way through its own research and analysis, pave the way for the consent decree that we are now under. So she, there's no mayor in our history that has been better equipped or more knowledgeable about policing and about police reform. So that, that gives her a lot, of, uh, a lot of both credibility and, 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 and knowledge. To, to to make change. The other challenge, though, is that she even as she came in the door as mayor a year ago, we were already falling behind on our responsibilities around a consent decree. There was a study that came out late last year that showed that we had failed to meet most of the deadlines for most of the things that we were supposed to have had in place. Something like 37 out of 50 deadlines had been missed, and she has said herself that we remain way behind the eight ball. So she's got a challenge to. You know she's got the credibility but here she is in, in in the city hall now and she looks around and we're already behind so so it, it was very important for her to say that acknowledge that and then uh, argue that she's going to uh,
0: play a lot of catch-up fast
2: you're listening to and the writing at, we... ta-
0: at the same time i mean of course lori's own personal story you know um african-american woman uh coming from a, a low-income or working class background herself and I just, you know, you get the sense when she talks about the history of racism in this country that, uh, you know, she's obviously drawing on personal experience. I mean, I don't think she's just saying that stuff. It's not just rhetoric with her. Uh, at the same time, um, everything Laura's talking about, about her credibility and her understanding of the police department, is also used against her in some, uh, by some people who says, oh, we heard in the campaign uh, last year, she's a cop. You know, they see a lot of people, activists see her as very closely aligned with the police department and wonder if she actually could bring out the kind of uh, changes that they need, because a lot of people, of course, don't want just reforms. They want something that is far more uh, broad and and far more dramatic than just kind of nipping at the edges of how the police department operates.
2: Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul is asking Congress for broader authority over unconstitutional policing. Mick, what can you tell us about that?
0: Well, this um, basically comes in response, not basically, this does come in response to uh, really the last three and a half years under the Trump administration. uh, They have taken a step back from what the Obama administration had done in terms of overseeing police departments around the country, where the Department of Justice under Obama uh, entered into, uh, I think it was dozens of consent decrees with local police departments, basically trying to outline uh, civil rights violations uh, and map out paths for fixing some of those issues. And right from the get-go, if you remember, uh, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions came in to, to the position, leading the Department of Justice, and said, that he didn't believe in consent decrees, that he didn't believe in this, and that he was looking out for uh, to have the backs of police officers and law enforcement around the country. So there was a complete change in not just tone but in policy and approach to uh, civil rights violations by police departments nationwide. So what you're seeing now with uh, Attorney General Raul here in Illinois and other states is they're trying to step up – you see this a lot, especially in states where, that are led by uh, Democrats who are uh, at odds with the Trump administration with policies. You see it with governors, including J.B. Pritzker, who have, you know, butted heads with Trump over their coronavirus response and many other issues. You've seen it; Lori Lightfoot recently said uh, she wanted to say "fu" to the president. Uh, so there's this real tension um, and when it comes to the attorney ge- attorneys general around the, the country. There's The state attorney general—they're basically saying, you know, we want to step in where the federal government has failed and provide more robust oversight of police departments. Well, speaking, and you have to
3: remember—you have to Mm -hmm. remember that the attorney general's office here in Illinois took the lead on making this consent decree happen under Lisa and Kwame Raul's predecessor. She was uh, in defiance of the, the Trump administration and in, and in cooperation with some uh, some of o- Obama administration uh, experts and resources. She stepped forward and in conjunction with the Emanuel administration pushed through with the consent decree and made sure it happened in court. And I think Kwame Raul is, t- is taking up the gauntlet here and basically trying to do an in run, as, as Mick points out, trying to do an in run around the the trump administration's reluctance to 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 move forward with consent decrees and police reform
2: well this week president donald trump threatened to send federal troops into major u.s cities like chicago to end protests and looting mayor lightfoot said she'll see trump in court if he sends federal troops to chicago without her permission i want us to hear a clip of that
1: we are not going to give over our city to the military so the president can play to his reelection. that's not going to happen Period.
2: Mick, quickly unpack a little bit more of, of what happened in, in this exchange.
0: Well, there's so much that's happened this week. Um, I think um, it, it, it was a very confusing chain of events, but essentially, uh, Donald Trump uh, came out after on a call with governors, and the, the content of the call, recording the call, was uh, later leaked to the media where he basically said that the governors were a bunch of wimps who didn't do enough and they let all this rioting and unrest happen. And he said that he would mobilize uh, the U.S. military and and send them out to cities around the country if the governors weren't willing to step up. And um, this just provoked waves of response around the country. I mean, here, of course, we just heard the mayor saying, no way, We'll, we'll, we'll fight you legally about this. We don't think you have the authority. Uh, governor Pritzker essentially said the same thing. He said that Trump didn't have the right to do that over the objections of local officials and governor. Um, and then there are just waves of this naturally. I'm sure people are uh, aware of the former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis uh, writing a piece uh, or, or giving a statement to the Atlantic magazine where he basically accused Trump of being an enemy of the Constitution and trying to divide the United States. And then we have, there was a controversy about the New York Times decision to, on its op-ed page, allow Republican Senator Tom Cotton uh, to write a piece basically backing Trump's position, saying why the military should go out there. So this is all part of a broad national conversation, very politicized, but also incredibly dangerous. I think um, uh, most people do not want – most people, uh, I believe, are both in sympathy with the protests. They understand that protests aren't the same thing as some of the looting and rioting that's gone on. Um, and uh, while they do want to see peace in the streets, uh, most people are vehemently opposed and uncomfortable with the idea of further militarization of what's going on out there.
2: Laura, I want to talk about the local response to protests across the city. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is pushing back against criticism that she was prioritizing downtown over neighborhoods during recent protests. Let's listen.
1: There is no way, no way that we would ever let any neighborhood receive more resources and protection than any others, ever. And that certainly didn't happen over the course of the weekend.
2: Laura, I want to hear from you, but first I want to mention some breaking news from this morning. The independent monitor overseeing CPD's consent decree told WBEZ she will prepare a special report on the department's response to recent protests. But talk a little bit more about the the uh, pushback Mayor Lightfoot is getting around how the city is responding to to these demonstrations.
3: Well, I believe given who she is, as big points so out where, where she comes from, what her background is, and, and how much she cares about. Uh, racial equity and has made that front and center in her own administration. I believe her when she says that they would never, the administration would never intentionally deprive or shortchange communities of color, but the proof may be in the pudding. Uh, When I first heard that there was a plan to divert uh, to, to, to 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 close off the downtown area to to have the national guard support the police officers in keeping folks out of the downtown in, in out downtown area. The first thing I thought of, well, what does that mean? If there if there are protesters and if there are looters out there, where are they going to go? They're going to go somewhere else, and where else would they go in the city? But uh, mainly to the south and west sides, and that's exactly what happened. And it's apparently. Um, the administration has hasn't you know formally acknowledged this, but apparently the police could not handle uh, all the unrest. It, it was very organized, as they have said. It was very uh, targeted, and they and the police police were not able to handle all the looting. So and so you you heard from many aldermen, some of them, some of her own allies, say that they were left uh, they were left in the lurch that their communities were were left unprotected, that there were not there was not enough police response to spike calls, and so that. Creates this perception that that th- those communities were neglected, and these are the very communities that she has uh, made a centerpiece of her reform agenda in terms of racial equity, in terms of bringing more resources and economic development to those communities. So it's a real tragedy. Uh, I don't think again it was intentional, but the and then there's the other issue of the National Guard. Um, i think mick is right that folk many folks uh in the city don't want more military more of a military presence but several of the aldermen led by alderman anthony Beale from the far south side say bring them on bring on the national guard because we need our neighborhoods protected and the police aren't just up to the job
2: well i don't want us to forget that in the midst of these protests there's also a pandemic that's ongoing the city started its phase three of reopening. But, Mick, you reported this week on seniors dying alone at home during the coronavirus pandemic, specifically seniors in public and subsidized housing. What did you find in your reporting?
0: Well, uh, quick background. I um, heard from a couple of people separately, didn't know each other, who uh, had told me, you know, that seniors had been found in public housing or in a uh, federally subsidized buildings uh these are all buildings where seniors uh, live independently in their own apartments they're not care facilities which is an important thing to note but they're all buildings that are um, either public housing chicago housing authority or they are subsidized by the federal department of housing and urban development so i had a couple people alert me to the fact that uh Seniors had been found um, sometimes days as long as a week after they had died, um, which indicates, of course, that they had just totally slipped through the cracks and very, very sad. So uh, my reporting partner, uh, Haru, Corinne, and I took a look at this, and we did find a number of cases where this was happening. And it, it happens. Jen, against the backdrop of, again, these are buildings where uh, Elderly people, um, and even people who aren't quite elderly, I think to be eligible for a senior building, you only have to be 55 years old, um, where people live independently on their own. But because of that, when there's an emergency situation like the pandemic, when uh, a lot of service organizations and volunteer operations to make sure people are connected, they essentially go on hold. And so people are more isolated than ever. And so what we basically found was there's a patchwork system. In some places, people were checked on, in some places, they weren't. And uh, the end result was, again, these heartbreaking stories of people who were discovered um, sometimes uh, just a, quite a long time afterward. And it just, it just breaks your heart to hear about that.
2: How much of this is about the impact of the pandemic specifically and how much of it is about a a system not being adequately resourced to support the needs of its residents?
0: That's a great question. I think it's more about the system, but the pandemic has heightened uh, all of these issues, all these social problems we've had, from racism to income inequality, access to health care. We've all been talking about these stories you've been hearing about them for the last couple months and and how it's just, uh, you know, heightened everything and and exposed the vulnerabilities of people who, um, you know, who are disconnected. And so I think this is one of those classic examples of that. Um, It it also is happening in a backdrop where over the last generation, um, public housing policies around the country, including the Chicago housing authority, they had, really moved away from uh, the notion that they are a social service agency. I mean, they really try to stay focused on the fact that they are a provider of housing. And while they do have some support services for residents, um, you know, because I think of the, the difficult history, um, and, and sometimes let's just be honest, the, the gross failures of public housing in Chicago and elsewhere... Um, in the administration of it, I think that the CHA um, and the federal government are reluctant to say that they're anything more than a provider of housing, they're anything more than a landlord. So they don't, there's a line they don't want to cross into social services. And so when you have a situation like this where people really are isolated, they do something, but they're not really equipped to take another step to make sure that everyone is is fully checked on just as one example um and there's a there's actually an ordinance that's uh, been introduced to the city council that would require more wellness checks and more of a health care support system for people seniors in these kinds of properties and as of yesterday uh lori lightfoot's administration uh you know basically shot down that proposal. They've introduced a watered, much watered down proposal, and so uh, those discussions are still happening. So there's a real reluctance, even though there's an acknowledgement that people can flip through the cracks, there's a real reluctance to have like a public housing agency step in to fill it. Hmm.
2: Well, just as we wrap up here, I don't know about the two of you, but coming through this week, I find myself with more questions every day, and Laura, I'm I'm wondering what questions you'll be looking for answers to in the coming days and weeks.
3: Well, the biggest question is, will we finally see real change? Uh, what I'm encouraged—I mean, how many times have we had these conversations about mm-hmm. racial inequities in this country? It's, it's not just George Floyd; it's the COVID nineteen. It's it's uh, decades and decades of conversations, and nothing fundamentally really changes. Um, but I do have a little bit of hope, and I'm going to be looking forward to seeing um, the results of sort of the coming together that you saw in the streets of Chicago and in many other parts of this country, where you saw pe- not just people of color marching and speaking up, but white people, people who've never marched for anything before, corporate leaders who are speaking out. I, I, my mail mailbox inbox has just been stuffed with uh, statements from every corporation and business, uh, major corporation business in, that you can imagine issuing statements of solidarity around this george floyd case so let's see if the people can put their money where their mouth is and and move forward with some real reforms and real change that's what i'm going to be watching for
2: Mick, what about you
0: yeah i totally agree i mean i just have to say first of all that um laura is a, a friend of mine and, and a mentor of mine and i was an intern at at the chicago reporter more than 20 years ago uh, when Laura was the uh, the leader, the editor, and publisher there and trained me and so many others um, in not just investigative reporting, but investigative reporting that tries to make a difference, that looks at these mm-hmm. very issues that now are once again uh, front and center. So, um, you know, I think that we're all going to try to keep highlighting what's going on. And I agree with Laura, you know, let's see if this is really a a moment of change. Um, And I hope that it's not, I hope the discussions continue to go beyond just the symptoms. I think police accountability is of course, a very, very important issue, but it's also uh, a symptom of white supremacy. It's a symptom of systemic racism. And so I hope that there will be discussions and specific proposals to get at those many, many, uh, the many, many manifestations of those things and not just focus on policing.
2: That's it for Reset. If you want to connect with us about anything you hear on the show, you can leave us a voicemail at 888-915-9945. Just leave us your name and neighborhood. But that's it for today. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.